I'm so excited to be here with Radha Subramanian, Chief Research and Analytics Officer of CBS Corporation and President of CBS Vision. Tanya, so good to see you and happy to chat always. Wonderful. Well, we're going to start with um, we're going to start with a nice, easy one for you. Now, I heard in our earlier discussions that in addition to being a professor and a longtime veteran of the research industry and analytics space, you also actually started on stage. Tell me a little bit about how you got here and just some of the evolutions that you needed to go to, to, um, you know, land in this current role. Of course. Um, I think you and I were chatting about this a little bit. A lot of us who are in positions like this today start in a lot of unexpected places um, and eventually find our way. Um, and this business is really good for people who are both analytical and creative. Uh, I am both. And that's why uh, for creative people like me who are also, uh, you know, have a math bent, it ends up being a really good fit. But let me tell you a little bit about my journey. Right. Uh, people often ask me um, if my career, anyone else's career was a series of conscious choices. And I would say, no, it's not like you have an Excel spreadsheet and map out a career and know where you're going to be 20 years from now. Uh, life doesn't work like that, but it's good to have passion. It's good to have vision. It's good to have a sense of what you want to do, even if it's not specific. I want to be in the media since I was probably 12, 13 years old. I didn't know what that would look like. You know, first I wanted to be a journalist and I realized war-torn territory scared me. Um, you know, as you and I were talking about, I had um, a stint of an actor, but it wasn't intellectually stimulating enough for me. Um, I have a doctorate from Northwestern. Uh, I was an academic. I was a professor at NYU. Uh, but I ultimately landed in the media business, in research analytics, because it's a really good fit for my sort of mix of right brain and left brain. I'm in the creative profession, but as an analytics leader, and uh, that's something that, you know, I mean, I've done TV, I've done digital media, I've done social media, I've done a lot within this space. Uh, but I think that uh, this business yields a lot uh, for people who are like me, who are um, holistic in their interests and who like to have fun with it. As you as you reflect back on your career, and I know there's so much still to come, but so far, what was the most influential decision that you've made as you sort of reflect back? Right. Um, it's always interesting to reflect back, right? I, I'll talk about several different pivot points and changes, um, but I'm also a little bit proud of my young self when I look back because I realized that what I had, maybe I still have it today, is a degree of fearlessness, right? Just jumping into the unknown without overthinking it and overanalyzing it. And I'll just give you a few examples of some of these big pivots or big jumps, right? Left my family in India, moved to the U.S., started over. Country, you know, where I barely knew anyone, uh, had never been before. So that's, you know, a pretty major pivot. Um, having a career as an academic, but realizing that my passion was more on the business side of things and jumping into media as a business. Uh, but also after having had a very successful career in television, realizing a lot of the action and the learning and the growth was happening in digital and social and taking a leap of faith and jumping in there. So I would not call it an individual experience or pivot. I would call it a series of pivots. And I think the one thread that goes through all of it is, um, you know, a degree of confidence in, I'll figure it out. I don't know all the answers. 
Um, I don't know everything that I possibly need to do this job well, but I know enough and I have a lot to bring to the table and I'll learn the rest. So that would be my overarching thread. Where, where do you think that comes from? Like, is there something as you're staring into an abyss and about to do something that you really, you know, don't know what's going to happen next? What, what do you tell yourself? Like, what, what, is, what is the thing that gets you to make that leap? I know many people at the moment are, you know, assessing what's important after a year of working from home and maybe thinking about a change or, you know, doing something that's outside of their comfort zone. What, what's your process yeah. Um, so I think there are two things, right? And all of us can take complete credit for who we are and what we do. A lot comes from our environment, the opportunities we've had. So I 100% credit my parents for some of that confidence because they always had my back. They were always there for me, right? So they inherently created um, in me a degree of confidence that enables me to take these leaps. But there's also a, another philosophy, right? Which is this is your one life. You only live once. I mean, I'm Hindu, so maybe I get, you know, to be reincarnated. But uh, for all I know, this is my one life. You get to live once. Consciously, right, yeah. <laughs> um, you get to live consciously. And I always have a degree of, you know, fear of missing out. So the fear of missing out is a greater driver from me than the need to hold on to the certain and the true. Um, and that's what propels me uh, to jump forward. Yeah, that's a, that's an incredible analogy. I think it's uh, it's sort of explaining that um, you're perhaps coming at it a little differently to how many people do. There's a lot of behavioural economic theory that says, hey, we'll do a lot more to not lose something than to potentially gain. But it sounds like the fear of not getting the gain has really sort of has driven you throughout your career. Exactly. And I would say that in many aspects of my life, right, in relationships and having children, um, in real estate, I mean, there are a lot of places where, you know, I always just want to be part of the action. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And those are just risks you have to live with. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, for, for, you know, if you're into risk and into change, it's been a great year and a half for you, I'm sure. There's, there's been a lot going on. I mean, as you sit atop a huge, like massive media organization, um, that services the American consumer and beyond that, but specifically we'll, we'll focus there. How have you in your role um, in research and analytics stayed close to the American consumer in order to sort of feed intelligence regarding programming and sort of consumer preferences, um, you know, let's say in the last 12 months? Sure. Um, I think many of us will call these last 12, 14, 15 months in some ways the worst years of our lives, but perhaps also the best ones from a learning growth and development point of view. And we in CBS, at CBS and in CBS management have a very clear sort of vision or approach to this, and it's called creative adaptability. None of us has lived through this before. There is no handbook for how to lead, how to manage, how to do your job, how to make television, how to do research at a time like this. So we've been about take it one day at a time, figure it out as you go along. And I will say that being in this business is more critical 
than ever at a time like this. On the one hand, it's critical to be in television because television connects people. It keeps them informed. It's carried many of us through and kept us sane during a time when we were isolated in so many other ways. Um, and consumer research, which we evolved, of course, evolved to online, you know, invented Zoom focus groups um, and did many other things is even more critical because it's very easy to become disconnected or tone deaf to what is going on in the real world today, um, especially as our so-called ivory towers are even more so given, you know, that we're all stuck in our apartments and houses and so on. So um, I think creative adaptability is the theme and we approach everything from show production to consumer research with that lens. What is the role of um, social media in all of that? You talk a lot about, you know, the importance of content, but how are you viewing social media and newer channels um, as, you know, as, as you continue on with insights? I wouldn't call social media new anymore, Tanya. I think you and I have dabbled in it for probably a good 10 to 15 years at least. By Longer this than point. we'd care to recall, Longer for than sure. And it's more... <laughs> It's the fabric of our existence, you know, people's grandparents are on social media, etc. But I think um, if I can pull back a second, right, there's social media, there's artificial intelligence, there's machine learning, there's conventional research, there is neuroscience. Uh, there are so many tools out there and honestly, a really rich landscape uh, to play with. And I think we very easily fall into the one versus the other, which doesn't work. Right. Um, as a leader, my job is to harness the best of the insights I can generate from social media and couple that with something I can do in a dial test or a focus group or through an MI project. And that's what the teams and the companies look to people like us to do. Right. It's not to be the world's expert in simply social media measurement or AI or ML. It's to know when to use which tool or which combination of tools to solve which problem. Um, I'm not a doctor. I mean, I have a PhD, but even though, you know, all my mother ever wanted from me was to be a doctor. <laughs> but I do think of the job um, as a little bit of surgery, right? Like a surgeon has a whole host of tools at his or her uh, disposal. Um, and But then ultimately it's on them to figure out what to do when they're in the operating room. Now, I will never say that my job is as serious or as, as important as being in the operating room, uh, but it's a little bit of that, you know, you use your experience and you use your gut and you figure out the best tools for the job. Well, and I think a lot of what you're describing there is sort of almost like a playbook for the modern researcher. And if you think about the traditional researcher and what that meant and what organisations now require in terms of answers to questions, actionable insights, strong recommendations, like I feel like when I started out in research, you know, researchers weren't there going, here's what you should do. It was very academic. It was about vacating the centre and just presenting um, presenting information for others to make decisions. How have you, like, tell me a little bit about your approach to research because it, it sounds like it's very practical, it's very adaptable, but it's also very different from how um, analytics and research have been approached over the years. Right. So I think the, the way I would... Um, 
approach anything or start with the problem is to really understand what you're trying to solve for. I'm very, very embedded in the businesses and I know what the businesses are trying to accomplish and what success looks like. So I really start with being um, not a consultant to a business leader, but being a business leader myself and uh, living the realities of the choices or the recommendations um, that I make, right? So you start with really knowing what you're trying to solve for and what you can practically achieve. And honestly, even taking into account things like time and money, if I have the perfect answer and I have 99.9% uh, confidence in that, but it's going to take me five years and $10 million, you know, I can't really do it, right? I have to be okay with a degree of good enough. I think to go back to how we think about our conventional training and rigor um, with what is required as a business leader today, um, I will start by saying rigor is important. Honesty is important. Not allowing your own biases and opinions to come into the research is 100% critical. And that'll get you 70, 80, 90% of the way there, but it won't simply tell you what to do or what the answer is. So I think after you communicate what the data is saying or what the consumer is saying, it's okay to then label the next 10%. You know, here is what the data is saying. If I were to interpret this or in my opinion, here are some things we should consider right, and really differentiate and label what the data is saying versus when you are making a leap of faith and just be honest about it, and then you'll have more credibility in the room. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's excellent advice because I think that's something that many researchers struggle with of like how much of themselves to put into the recommendations. And then I think on the receiving end, marketers and content teams struggle because it's like someone won't give them an opinion or they give an opinion. It's not clear that it's an opinion. Then it feels like, oh gosh, the data is saying it. I have to do it. Right. So I think, I think that's excellent advice. I mean, in your role, you know, I know you're working with a lot of CMOs and marketers what are those collaborations like? Like, what are you hearing marketers most want to understand about your audiences or about the consumer right now? Sure. Um, I, I will say, having been in this business for a good 20, 20 plus years, um, the relationship between media company and marketers has always been strong, but I would venture to say it's never been closer than it is today. Because the world is changing, we're all figuring out together, media is changing, and it's through these open, transparent partnerships that we're all going to move forward together, right? So I'm going to give you sort of both the big picture as well as the day-to-day -day of what I'm hearing a lot. Um, a lot of what I'm hearing is a COVID to a post-COVID world and what that's going to look like and what normal or the new normal will be. And honestly, there's no answer, right? We're all going to figure it out together. Uh, I'm completely vaccinated, uh, but sometimes I mask and sometimes I don't mask when I'm outside. And I, I don't quite have um, someone telling me what I should do at every moment, but we're figuring it out together uh, with the CDC and everybody else, right? And that's how I think of uh, this big question of COVID to post-COVID, which by the way, is still spiraling around the world and destroying countries, right. as you know, across Asia um, yep. and everywhere else. 
But then on a more practical level, um, marketers are very, very interested in knowing the mix between mass reach and targeting, because we all acknowledge that there's a role for both and the right balance of the two and the balance that television offers, because we have broadcast media that are broad. Uh, reach media. We also have connected TV, OTT, and highly targeted television. So both of us are on this journey together to figure out how the two coexist and what some of the optimal points are. Um, and then the last thing that I'll be remiss if I don't mention is every marketer, including myself and my role um, in marketing, you know, we do care about deduplicated reach and frequency. You've heard a lot about these initiatives around the WFA and ANA and all of that. Uh, this is not some glorious, you know, um, magnificent, huge idea, but it's something difficult and challenging and practical that we all need to get our hands around to do our jobs better. So I would say that uh, the atmosphere is one of a high degree of collaboration and openness and sharing and back and forth. Um, and But I think people are curious both about what the world brings as well as about what the future of media brings. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's it's a really important point to raise because I think at one on one level with one part of your brain, you're observing culture, you're advising um, your teams how to navigate it, you're going through what's happening yourself. Um, but then on the other hand, you're also sort of partnering with marketers to be a part of what's happening in culture. Um, how are you personally staying close to the consumer and sort of helping you know your company and your team? Teams make those decisions about what to focus on as, you know, to your point, as the uncertainty in the world and with consumers, you know, continues to persist. Right. So um, I think a few years ago, we would have all given you a different answer to this, you know, and almost you can research your way out of it. Uh, but right. I think we all evolve and grow. Um, and I think uh, as we evolve and grow, um, our, percept our perceptions or uh, perspectives on the world become broader and more nuanced, right? So um, there are many, many topics on which we do a lot of research, continuous consumer research, uh, including specifically uh, exactly where, you know, people's heads at with COVID, uh, you know, how do we not scare them yet keep them informed, uh, politics, et cetera. So there's definitely a role for conventional research. But you also have to live in the world uh, that you're creating and supporting, right? So you have to be in social media. You have to be a voracious reader. You have to watch a ton of online video. You have to watch a ton of television, uh, streaming on demand and linear. So there's a lot to be said for, you know, you need to walk the walk and talk the talk. Uh, there is no advice that I would ever give to a marketer that I wouldn't try on myself or my company's marketing efforts. So, you know, you have to live in the culture, you have to be part of it. A lot of people ask me uh, um, to this day, even though I have children and so on, why I've committed to living in the city, right? Um, and mm. why I live in New York City in particular, because simply walking around the streets of New York with its diversity and its energy, uh, the highs and the lows, keeps you connected to culture in a way few other things can do. Travel does the same thing. You know, get out of your comfort zone um, and go to different places um, and don't always stay at the Four Seasons. And then you'll have these experiences that make you 
a better person, but also a better leader. So I'm a big believer in doing all of the research we can and learning from other people's work, but also just living in the world we're all talking about. Yeah, no, it's it's an important point of, you know, I'm, I'm going to pick up on what you said specifically around social. If you are not on TikTok, enjoying TikTok, it's very, very hard to understand what creative is going to work, like how it all comes together. I think it's, you know, harder and harder if you're not embracing something to potentially come in as an outsider and, and begin participating. Exactly. And you know what helps me and keeps me honest? my young children and my teens who will just make fun of me and, you know, call me <laughs> um, if I veer from uh, the path. So actually uh, I'm joking about it, but surrounding yourself um, with young people, including people who don't work for you and people, uh, you know, in various youth demos, uh, whether that's as an aunt, a cousin, a big brother, big sister, um, or just someone in the world is also critical because I will tell you that, you know, um, people in their tweens and teens keep you more honest than pretty much anyone else. Right. Anyone who is not motivated to say nice things to you on any level. <laughs> um, so thinking back, um, you know, you, you now advise and partner with so many brands. What was the first brand that made a big impact on you growing up? So um, it's funny, there are several of us um, who came from cultures or countries that weren't quite participating yet in global capitalism or uh, in the market economy as we know it. So when I was growing up in India, there was no Coca-Cola. You couldn't have access to it. But if I was a new Coke as a global brand, right? We had our local versions of Coke, but I remember being obsessed with Coke. And I remember going on vacation uh, to Singapore or Malaysia and having my first Coke. And this was this like huge experience. I'm sure it didn't taste any different or better than Capicola, which was the Indian version of it. Uh, but I do remember having all of this weight and value around Coke and then bringing it back in my suitcase and not realizing that these things have an expiry date and opening it several <laughs> years after the fact and not understanding why it was flat. Um, it's a funny story, but it does tell you that the power of culture and the power of brands is truly global and even touches and reaches people who have never had a first-hand experience with the brand. Yeah, that's, that's an incredible story. It's, uh, you know, uh, it, it makes me think um, a lot about just the storytelling component of a brand and why that brand sort of meant so much. Um, you know, if you were to describe your role to an outsider, like how would you how would you explain what you do? Uh, so it's interesting because I always have to explain to my parents what I do, and I still don't think they. <laughs> Me can too. Help. By the way, I don't think I've made any progress. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the easiest way for me to talk about it, and this is the way I talk about it to young people in particular when I speak at schools or universities or somewhere else, is that. My job is to stay truly connected and to listen to the consumer, you know, the American consumer or the global consumer, depending on the specific role. But my job is to stay close to real people and 
translate that back or bring that back to corporations and make sure that what companies are doing are authentic and true and connected with the real people who are their consumers. So it's very much that in-between role, that translator role. And I take great pride in it, but I'm also supremely honored by it. Right. The fact that I get to sit with regular people in regular rooms and then go back to um, a team of Hollywood producers um, and tell them what people think about their creative. You know, it's a great privilege and a great responsibility. So I've known you for a couple of years and observed you for many more years. And you know, even just uh, based on some of our conversations, I'll, I'll sort of observe gosh, you make it sound really easy. You talk about fearlessness. I mean, no, but you talk about some really seismic life decisions um, and, and you make them sound like they were almost as natural as breathing. So what is hard for you? Can you talk about what are some of the things that challenge you or that you find hard? So I find this whole concept of balance very elusive and hard. Like, I kind of don't know what it means, right? Um, I mean, I always have a lot going on in my life. I often talk about I only do three things. I work out, I work, I do homework. Uh, but they take up, you know, many, many hours um, of the day. But I think um, there are lots of ideas of what people should be. There are ideas of what women should be. There are ideas of what mothers should be. There are ideas of what women of color should be in particular. Um, and it's hard, but it's essential to shut out all that chatter, right? It's, we have to stop trying to live up to what other people's ideas of us are, because ultimately they're pigeonholing us into a race, into a gender, into a category, into a profession. And ultimately, if you lose sight of who you are and what your values are, none of the other stuff matters. So to go back to where I started this, right? Um, I don't look for balance. I don't look for other people to tell me what the right balance is between working and working out and motherhood and homework. I figure it out for myself and I figure out what's comfortable for me and the people in my life, my work life, as well as my personal life. Um, and so it's really, really hard to hold on to your true north when there is so much coming at you, but ultimately you have to go back to your values and your true north, um, however difficult it is, because without that, you're nothing. Yeah, and, and I mean, you're, you sort of touched on that, but, you know, it's been, it's been a big year of talking about diversity and talking about um, sort of what that means for companies. How, how have you navigated this topic? What does that mean to you? And sort of what do you see as the role that you play, um, you know, either for your peers or, you know, for future generations? Yeah. So it's been a very, very interesting time and a highly introspective time for all of us, right? Um, you know, there's Black Lives Matter, there's the current violence against Asians and many of us being afraid to go on the subway or go on the streets um, and live our lives fully. And I will say that I've always thought of myself as a role model. And I think people at my company or even people in my life look at me as a role model um, uh, because I feel that there are so few people who look like me or look like you who are in these positions that, you know, uh, that's important. But I will say I've had one 
um, almost transformative um, behavioral change this past year, which is, I think I spent many years of my life just trying to be one of the boys, trying to be the best at what I do, you know, trying to be twice as hardworking and twice as smart and twice as educated um, and almost denying uh, that I am a woman and a person of color and um, a mother and an immigrant and so many other things, right? So I think this year, um, if the one lesson that I've learned for myself and perhaps not even for myself, but for the people around me is to acknowledge all of who I am um, not just the piece of paper and the degrees and the titles and the job, but myself as a whole human being. Because if I can communicate that sense of um, wholeness and of belonging, perhaps somebody else will look at me and feel that they can belong to. Yeah, well, and it's 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 a profound distinction that you're pointing out, which is the things that you were previously emphasizing were sort of externalities, right? Like there were things that you could prove, like your education and others, your wholeness and your full self is something that, um, you know, is subject to opinion and it's subject to, like there isn't a way to externally validate it. Um, but no, I mean, I think it's for you when you when you took that step, what was the reaction? How did that make you feel? Like, do you think that's changed anything in your leadership style or your approach to work? So I think it's very, very scary. And I will not say I'm done. I've only started this journey of really being uh, present or revealing all of myself, right? Well, um, I'm relieved that you're not done because if you were also done with that in under a year, then I'll just hang up this <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think among, you know, we were talking about all those pivots and this is probably the scariest one for me uh, to show vulnerability, right? Uh, it's perhaps it's, it's much easier to show perfection and accomplishment um, mm. and everything else. And I think much it's incredibly scary for me. Um, it's also honestly a bit disorienting to people around me, right? People who are only used to, you know, you being the buttoned up person in every meeting who has all the data and who has all the answers, but is now asking questions uh, about things that are under the surface and a little bit deeper. But again, without discomfort, there is no growth, right? And I have to give my colleagues and everyone, you know, um, uh, you know, I'm sure it's uncomfortable for them when, you know, this machine suddenly becomes a human. Um, but, you know, it's perhaps more convenient to work with the machine. Uh, but at the they same were like, time, we knew what the robots were bringing, getting conscious, you know. Right. Um, but I think that everybody, for lack of a better term, is more woke now, or at least trying to be. So I think it's going to be an uncomfortable few years, but hopefully we'll end up in a good place together. Yeah, no, I, I really love that. Um, so, so I mean, you're across so many things right now and you've already had so many um, different pivots throughout your career. What's the next mountain to climb for you? What are you excited about as you look out into the future? So I absolutely, absolutely love my job and love what I do. And I encourage anyone who really uh, is left brain and right brain, it's creative and analytical, who cares about human beings, but also likes spreadsheet. You know, I really encourage people um, to be um, in a profession like mine. Uh, 
Um, and I think a lot, I'm spending a lot of time now, whether it's at work or outside of work, um, in really trying to identify and grow the next generation of talent. Um, and hopefully someday, not too soon, uh, but someday I'll be able to hand off the reins to some other fabulous person um, and focus on issues that I care about, right? Um, I mean, global warming and the threat the planet is facing is very real and existential, and we all need to be focused on that. Um, you know, um, things aren't still easy and great for women and young girls around the world. So there are a lot of things I'm really passionate about, uh, but I'm not quite done with this part of my life yet. That's terrific. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that. Rada, so wonderful to have you as a guest today. Thank you so much and uh, really can't wait to, to follow up soon. Thank you. Have a good day.